0: The text this morning is from 1 John, chapter 2. We're continuing in the series, uh, the seventh in the series now, uh, of walking through 1 John. And so uh, if you will read with me verses 18 through 27. This is from the English Standard Version. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that all are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too Abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Herman Bavink, by the way, I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be going today, so I won't hold you in in suspense at all. I'll tell you right up front where I'm going, and then I hope uh, by God's grace that I'm actually able to get through and get there. so uh, the, the outline is pretty close uh, to what I'll be, I'll be going with, uh, but I did want to start off uh, quoting Hermann Bavink. He was a Dutch churchman and theologian in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and he wrote this. He wrote, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. Without his name, without his person and work, there is no Christianity left in a word Christ does not point out the way to salvation. He is the way itself. As, you, as I mentioned, we're in the series, uh, the seventh of the series, going through 1 John, and we've arrived this morning at this passage, 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 27. And, and the passage, the text, comes immediately on the heels of what Dr. Hunt spoke about last week, in which John is attempting to give the recipients of this letter some perspective. The world is passing away. Time is going by. Don't love the things of the earth because there's, there's coming an end to all of this. And so he's setting up for the, for the readers, children, remember, this is not all there is. C.T. stud a well-known British missionary and a cricket player, of all things, uh, wrote the poem, Only One Life twill Soon Be Past. It's very long. It's a fantastic poem. But the, but the line that everyone remembers is, Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so we're called to invest our heart, our mind, and our soul, and our strength in those things that will last. And so in this text recognizing that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And as he moves into this next part of the letter, the part that we just read, he, he resets his focus a little bit to draw His uh, reader's attention to the fact not only that the world is passing away, but that the last hour has already been struck. The bell has been rung. And we are there. I was listening to uh, Sinclair Ferguson talking a little bit about this, and he's, and uh, He's noted that, um, and he loves living in the, He loved living in the South at the time, because here in the South, particularly, there's other places in the world, but there's a complete fascination with the end times. With, is this the last hour, they love to ask. So his response to them was, you know, people are very excited about these last days, and, and it's fascinating. And he says, the, the answer to the question, are we living in the last hour, is, Of course. It began when Jesus came to Earth, and when he when he ascended into heaven and passed and poured out his Spirit, when when Peter at Pentecost says, "This is the sign," and chat in, in Acts says, "This is the sign that the last days have come," and the people say, "Well, is it? I mean, you have you seen? Is it the last? Is it the last days? Is it, you know, where you got earthquakes. Have you seen the politicians? Have you seen the criminals that are running around everywhere?" And the answer, of course, is, "Yes, we're living in the last hour." Because John says it here in black and white. See, now Jesus thought and he thinks about his work in terms of three hours. And I'm laying this out in terms of the first part, of course, is the last hour. Then as you see in the outline, we're going to be going through the Antichrist. And then it's going to be uh, some of the things that they taught. Then the warnings and then blessings. And then what do we do with this? So on the first part, it's going to be uh, we're dealing with the last hours. So when Jesus thought and when he thinks about the last hours... He thinks in terms of, really, in terms of three hours. The first hour was when he was crucified for our sins. You may recall when he says to Mary, his mother, he says, my hour is not yet come, and repeats it again. My hour is not yet come. Throughout the course, when people want to reveal who he is and they they want to to share, and Renai says, no, 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 don't tell anybody because my hour is not yet come. And then... As he, as he prepares to go to the cross, what does he say? My hour has come. And so he marches to the cross. That's the first hour. And we see the second hour when Jesus is, when he dies, he's, he is raised again from the dead. He reveals himself. He he's ascends into heaven. He is glorified and he pours out the Holy Spirit. And he pours it out on all his people. And it begins at the day of Pentecost. And the glorious experience, this overwhelming, majestic, magnificent experience of what it means to live in the grace of the Holy Spirit, it's brought right to the forefront. And we are, as the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, all baptized with one and the same Spirit in the body of Christ. And then, and then the last hour, that time between the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the coming again in majesty and in glory of the Lord Jesus. And you see, this is what John describes as the last hour. It's the same time frame that Peter and Paul referred to as the last days. We're living in that now-but-not-yet time between the hour when Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit, and that final moment when Christ returns again in glory to wind up history in its final culmination. It is, we are in now, the final act, the closing act. It is that time in the war, when the war has been won, but the last gasp rages on. It's where we're living. Christ has... Christ has done. He has accomplished everything. The, the war has been won. He has died. He has defeated death. And now Satan is in the last gasp. If you remember or think back on from D-Day, when, when the Allied troops invaded Europe to the point of V-Day, when the ultimate, in the V-E-Day in Europe, the, the battles that raged as, as the enemy was desperate to survive, gives you a picture, a little bit, of the days that we're living in now. This is the time for Satan to attack. So John tells us, therefore, then, that there are Antichrists coming, and they have, in fact, already come. Well, who are these Antichrists? It's not the Antichrist that's prophesied, the grand usurper himself who has been prophesied about. No, these these are, interestingly enough, and this is the real tragedy, by the way, of these Antichrists. These aren't enemies who've come from the outside. These are people who are coming from within the church. They identify themselves as members of the church. They've gone out from us, but they still consider themselves part of the church. They're not pagan unbelievers. Now, John is probably, by the way, in historical context, referring to a couple of teachers named Serinthus and Carpocrates. That's a great name. If you want a heretical teacher, your name ought to be Car-Poc- Par- Car- Car- Carpocrates. Um, yeah, It's awesome. But, you see, but he acknowledges that, even though he doesn't name these two, uh, he acknowledges the problem is actually far wider than just two teachers. Because, he says in verse 18, there are many antichrists. Now, the question is, who are the Antichrists? And he tells us in verse 22 and 23, the Antichrist are those who deny Christ. These are the, he refers to them very strongly, these are the liars. These are the ones who deny Christ. And you, you all know the, the context of 1 John, I think, well enough to know. We've been talking about the Gnostics. And, these, and the Gnostics, you may recall, then, just, just to put a point on it, is that at the time, there were a number of competing worldviews. The Gnostics kind of had a a, a way of of mixing a couple. One was probably the Greek, and the other one was a rather Eastern worldview. The Greek had the worldview that um, material is evil, that the spiritual, only the spiritual is good. By definition, if it's physical, it's bad. If it's spiritual, it's good. The Eastern religions had the idea that Material world was actually all an illusion. So, if you marry these two together, this idea of the illusion of the material and, the, and, uh, and actually the evilness of it, it becomes absolutely impossible then to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Impossible. It's possible to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they'll happily say that He is the Messiah but they completely redefine who this Messiah is. He was sent, but he's not God. He can't be God. In fact, the early church fought so many battles over who Jesus was and was not that there were actually four major councils that flowed out of that from from, uh, Nicaea to Ephesus to uh, Constantinople and and Chalcedon. All these flowed out, and the great argument was, who is Jesus? And the pendulum would always swing one way or the other. He's man, but he's not God. He's God, but he's not man. He just appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't really. He was just a ghost. It was impossible for God himself to take on finite flesh. If you read the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, it says that he was born of the Virgin Mary, right? Well, you know, us moderns, we really struggle with the whole Virgin Mary thing. Okay. For the ancients, they had no problem that he was born of the Virgin Mary. They had a problem that he was born. How could God become flesh? Impossible. So they redefine him. Others followed these two teachers. He had Arius who came later the Aryan controversy, and basically they ador- he adorned Jesus. He said there was a time when Jesus was not. He was created, he was divine, but he's not God. So he stripped from, he stripped from, I'll flip it around. He adorned God, with, he adorned Jesus with the name of God, but robbed him of his eternal divinity. Marcion dreamt that he was a mere phantom and only seemed to be there. Sibelius imagined that he differed in no way from the Father. He was just God, you know, just changed forms. They acknowledged his name, but rejected the truth concerning him. Calvin mentioned that Christ is denied whenever those things which peculiarly belong to Jesus are taken away from him. They were unwilling to accept Christ as he revealed himself. They said, no, that can't be because in my mind it can't be, I'm going to redefine him as he's revealed. I'm going to create my own. Even, years late, even some years after that, near, near, uh, uh, at the end near Chalcedon, Pelagius, who wasn't questioning the nature or character of God particularly, or the essence of God, he just decided that man could accept God and pursue God and fulfill all of God's commandments without the benefit of the Holy Spirit. We're just generally good enough to do that. God wouldn't give a command that we couldn't obey on our own. That was his view. And in the process, what he did was he stripped from Christ the glory and honor due from him who has the only power to raise people from the dead. So I've touched on what the problems were with what they were teaching, but let's, let's I've, I've just mostly said they're bad. Okay, So they shouldn't have been teaching these things. But what's the problem with it? Is this some sort of esoteric kind of theological discussion amongst people in ivory white towers who like to just, you know, chew on these things? But for the rest of us, let's be honest, it's just, it's not meaningful. No. These are critical issues. It goes to the very heart of the gospel. I argue that salvation itself is at stake. Our means and hope of salvation are being attacked and stripped away. If Jesus was not human, then there was no one to represent us and stand in our place. We have no federal head. If Jesus was not one of us, then we're, you and I, we're still left in our sins. There was no no second Adam. There was no one to fulfill every step of the law. There was no one to to fulfill everything to be true Israel. We're left in our sins. Paul tells us that not only if there was, if Jesus was not one of us and lived among us, if there's no resurrection, tells us that we are most of all to be pitied. So he had to have died. And you and I, Right now, we're living in the same hour. Many churches today say, well, look, we're a modern people. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the Apostles' C- Creed, but let's be honest, it's really a myth. These things couldn't have happened. There couldn't have been a virgin birth. There couldn't have been God come to earth. There couldn't have been a, 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 um, a crucifixion and a resurrection. There couldn't have been an ascension. These are myths with, with great lessons, spiritual lessons of spiritual resurrection. No one really rose from the dead. The stories in the Bible are metaphor. They're here to teach us, like I said, spiritual lessons. And John, what does John do? Old John. John's so old. John, in his oldness, is so bold. And he looks, he writes him, says, No, you're not just sadly mistaken. It's not just a slip-up. You're liars. An old hand writing it out they're liars these aren't metaphors for anything his death and resurrection is not a metaphor for one thing his death and resurrection satisfied God's wrath and and we are justified in our death and 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 his resurrection and so if all these things didn't happen then we're lost in our sins we're not lost in a metaphor Another problem with what they're teaching in, this, in the, the Antichrist they're teaching is if they're rejecting Christ as the Son of God and rejecting him as God himself, basically rejecting him as Christ revealed himself, then you can't even say that God is our loving Father. Who taught you anyway that God is your loving Father? By what means do you even come out and say, you know what, to me, I don't know about the whole Jesus thing, but to me, God is love, and God cares for me, and I just feel the warmth of God's fatherly care. Who taught you that? Except Jesus Christ himself. And so if you reject Christ, you're just making it up as you go along. You have no logical reason to believe that that God is a loving father in any way whatsoever. Don't be deceived by those who hover around Christ. And that's what they do, don't they? That's what the liars do. They hover around. They, they just kind of stay nearby and claim the name in many ways, Christ, but reject him. For us modern folks, you know, we, have, we have different views of truth. We have... There are a number of them. One is truth is knowable. I'm sorry, truth is not knowable. We'll go with that one. Truth is not knowable, so we walk around blindly, and basically it gives us permission to do whatever we want. So we can't know the truth. We just shrug our shoulders and kind of march on. Don't bother me making making arrogant claims of truth. Another view is that truth is what you make it. You create your own truth, and that's particularly popular today. You decide who you are, and then you transform the truth to fit your situation. The biblical view of truth is that there is an objective truth that is out there. And it's true whether we believe it or not. The Bible's expectation is that the truth is outside of us and we are to be transformed and changed by it. John is arguing for that in this passage. There is truth. Jesus is God He's come in the flesh. And any attempt to create your own truth about Christ strips away the glory and the majesty of God himself as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He says, I have written these things that you may know. And not only in knowing you may you have eternal life, but in knowing that you, you might be transformed. There's, the, there's just two sets of the problems that we find by rejecting Christ as he has been revealed to us in the scriptures. John gives us a warning at this point. He says in verse 23, and it's a dreadful warning, by the way, and I've touched on it no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. The one who loses the son loses the father. It's a dreadful warning. Because you see, there is no sense in which we have the father except through Christ. And this is a practical reality. God has given himself to us to be enjoyed only in Christ. God has given himself to us to be enjoyed only in Christ. If you seek God elsewhere, he can't be found. Jesus said that himself, didn't he? He never said that he would point you to the truth. He never said that you could find the way if you just simply followed his example. He never said that you could find life if you just followed his philosophy and his teachings closely enough. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Calvin again makes a comment on this and says more clearly, perhaps, since, since in Christ dwells all the fullness of the deity, the, wh- the fullness of God dwells in Christ. There is no God apart from Christ. Any religion, any philosophy, Well, they have a mere idol and not a true God. Even if they're a major religion. If they don't have Jesus Christ, they have an idol. Not a true God. Even if they use the parts of the scriptures. Without Christ, they have nothing. For by whatever titles they may honor the God whom they worship, still, as they reject him without whom they cannot come to God, and in whom God has really manifested himself to us, what have they but some creature or fiction of their own? What a horrible warning. What a devastating warning it is that if we abandon Christ, if we reject Christ, we've made up our own fiction. And we have no God whatsoever that can, has any hope of saving us. God gave himself to be enjoyed only in Christ, and therefore searching for God elsewhere is fiction and a waste of time. No son equals no father. No father is no salvation. This is doctrine. It's glorious doctrine. It's truth. It's glorious truth. Without the Son, there's no Father. Without the Father, there's no salvation. There is no hope. And we're attaching our hopes to a lie. You're holding on to a rope that's attached to nothing but your own fantasies. You like this rope because it looks better. It's easier for you to hold, maybe. But it's attached to nothing if it's not attached to Christ. You don't even get the benefit of a placebo except it makes you feel better, but it doesn't fix your problems. It just makes it worse. Last hour, antichrists, false teaching, warnings, but the apostle doesn't leave us there. He gives us blessings. Glorious blessings in this passage. He leaves us, and, I, and I'll, you know, because I'm goof-silly this way. Hey, I, I created a little acronym, and it just seemed like it worked. Uh, uh, he leaves us with a sea of blessings, S-E-A. I could have said spa of blessing, and you'll see why later, but it just doesn't have a ring to it the same way. He leaves us with a sea of blessings, the smile of the Father, eternal life, and abiding knowledge. Smile of the Father, eternal life, and abiding knowledge. I almost went with promise of eternal life, which gave me spa. And it, no. And so, uh, so I'm going with the smile of the Father, eternal life, and abiding knowledge. Let's Take a moment briefly and look at the blessings that um, that John, the dear apostle, leaves us here. We have the smile of the Father, the Father. We have His love, we have His embrace. Through the through the Son, we sang about it this morning. Not only not only has, our, has the guilt been removed, but the shame. The shame of our sin has been removed. When I'm talking to people, young people uh, nowadays, the whole idea of you've broken your, uh, sin is a, is a breaking of God's law, it, it doesn't resonate with them quite so much. So if I come at it from the other direction and say, well, in that case, let's talk about shame. The shame that was present with Adam and Eve when they left the garden the shame that drives us away from god that drives us to hide in the dark places the shame that covers us in so many areas of our lives and jesus he, we, the new testament even talks about it that jesus despising the uh, he, he endured the cross despising the shame he took on the shame of the cross for us our shame has been removed and because our shame has been removed we have the the willing and happy smile of the Father. You don't have to hide. You don't have to struggle for acceptance of your Creator. The the echoes of the garden, that are ringing in our ears every day. They're silenced. Sometimes, I think, we may think that the Son, maybe if we toe the line carefully enough, the Son will will convince the Father convince the father to begrudgingly accept us we do that i think i think all various forms of the christian religion where you have various entities that you go through to to convince jesus to answer your prayers who is then going to try and convince the father who's really very busy right (laughs) And, and, and has to put up with, with noisy creation, with noisy, sinful creation. And God's like, well, I've agreed to do it, so fine, we'll do it. You've convinced me. That is not what's happening. The Son stands there. And we are standing there in, in the shadow and in the light of the Son. And the Father, with greatest of joy, draws us into the throne room and says, come, be with me. And he smiles on us with the most open and happy and willing smile. That's God's disposition toward you and toward me when we have the son. There's no having to convince the father of anything. We have the smile of the father. We have eternal life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life means you're breathing again. You have the purpose. You have a purpose that goes beyond the moment. There's there's now ultimate meaning in your life. You're not just a corpse lying there. Eternal death with no end except to glorify God in your death. Because you're doing what dead things do. No, you've been given life. You have purpose. You have direction. The the theological terms, you have teleology. You have goals to which you are working, for which you have been designed, in fact. You're not simply standing still or marking time, even if you're just lying here. If you're in bed and you can't move, you think, I'm not of any worth. No. Not at all. Christ died for you. He gave you purpose. Even when life's circumstances have stripped away all that you thought made you who you are, you still have the smile of the Father and his eternal goals for you are still solidly, solidly in place. And then you have abiding knowledge. The text there says you don't need teachers, right? Because you already have all knowledge. You might be thinking that John says, well, then what are we doing? About, why do we have pastors? Uh, teachers, we've, we're wasting our time. And that's not what he's talking about. I have to say that because I'm preaching. But, um, but the context is that, he's, that there, there are Gnostics. And Gnostics had not only this idea about spirit and, and, and material world, but they had this idea of special knowledge that you would acquire special knowledge through some special mystical experience and that, that you, had, and you would attain to these higher levels of knowledge and those who had attained higher knowledge would go to th- those of us who had lesser knowledge and they say, you need teachers. John's saying, you don't need teachers because the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon you. Abide in his word, the word that you have had from the beginning. That's the truth. Looking at Christ... Having received the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you now have a relationship, personal, relation, direct relationship with God Himself. You don't need a teacher to teach you about that. You already have the Spirit. Here, let me, do you, have you met my friend? And yes, you're good friends with this friend of mine. And I say, Well, let me teach you about this friend of mine. And you could say, No, no, no. You don't have to teach me about your friend. I know him already, I've experienced him already. You don't need to teach me extra. If you know Christ and you have his word, then the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured upon you is sufficient. So so what do we do with this? It sounds good. But what do we do with this? What's the cure for dealing with antichrists? It's the gospel, isn't it? But you see, even the word gospel, we all nod. But the gospel has content. It's not just a power word that we just wave about and bite our bite our lip on and think this is good. It has content. You've been saved from sin and death by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone, and we know this through scripture alone. It's the cry of the reformation. Let the beautiful reality of this sink in. We've been saved from sin and death and meaninglessness and purposelessness and from our own selfish drives. We've been saved from the power and the guilt of death and the curse of death by God's grace alone. That's that's freeing. I don't have to work for it. In fact, I can't work for it. And if I try to work for it, I'm saying God's grace is not sufficient. But we want to work for it because that puts me back in control, doesn't it? It means if I work for it and I earn it, then God still owes me. And I don't like having been saved by grace alone because that puts me in a terribly weak spot. That means my whole life is nothing but a life poured out in thanksgiving. No, I cannot demand anything of God. He can only demand of me, and I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. And so that's why we create things that we have to do. But God's taken that away from us. It's through faith alone. I trust him alone, in Christ alone. What he did on the cross is sufficient. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We don't enhance it. We don't make it prettier or uglier. It is in Christ alone, and what he did is sufficient. And of course, all of this from creation onward was for God's glory alone. Did you, in our call to worship in Revelation 4, the, the elders are standing there and they're, and they're falling down before God and they're saying, to you, O oh Lord, belong glory and honor and praise, and worship. Why did they say that? Because you created all things. There's no mention of Jesus in chapter 4 of Revelation. If God did nothing else for us, nothing whatsoever, he would still deserve our worship because he created us. It's not until we get to chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 5, when, when, Jesus, when the Lamb is introduced and they said, who is worthy to open the scrolls? And remember, John is, is crying because no one was worthy. And then this Lamb stood up, a Lamb as one who was slain. He's worthy. And then... All the elders fell down and worshiped him. And so we do. The answer to all of this is the gospel. It tells us in verse 28, little children abide in him. Know, know the God himself who came in the flesh, who loved you enough to die for you. Who who else has loved you that much? He didn't have to do it. Who else has loved you enough to humiliate himself and die for you? Nobody. Know that we're in the last hour, that we're in that in-between but not yet stage. That is, we have the joy of knowing our Savior, but we still have the pain of this life until we reach glory. And know that in the last hour, We have the Holy Spirit, and he is walking with you. He will never abandon you in those darkest of moments, those lonely, painful moments of regret, of despair. He's right there with you, and he's working for your good. In the gospel, we're in a no-fail situation. The gospel tells us we're desperate sinners, separated from God, from life, from real lasting joy, and he he paid the debt. He covered our shame, and therefore we're free. But what are we free of and to? Well, we're free to let go of our desperate need to control and have our own way. I want to be God. I deserve to have my own way, and I deserve to vent my spleen whenever possible. I, I have the right to tell everybody how I think and feel about everything. No. I don't have to have control. I don't have to have my own way. I don't have to fight every step of the way with the idea that if I don't take care of it, no one will. You're free to be others-focused. I'm so busy defending yourselves, protecting your rights, concerned what others might be thinking about you. No one can tell me what to do, and if I don't stand up for it, it's some violation of God himself somehow. No. or I'm concerned about the approval or disapproval of others, or I'm worried about being short-changed. I'm free from all of that because my Savior has all that taken care of. You're free to lay your disappointments and broken dreams in the hands of the one who loves you and gave up everything for you. You're free to one another. How many commands there are in Scripture about one another? Be at peace with one another, love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, do not pass judgment, accept, teach, admonish, exhort, serve, bear one another's burdens, forbear with one another, be kind and compassionate. Forgive one another, submit to one another, don't lie to one another, comfort one another, build up each other, don't speak evil of one another, don't grumble, confess your faults to one another, pray for one another, have fellowship with one another, encourage one another, seek to do good to one another, do not provoke one another, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And it goes on and on and on. And the reason we're able to do that is because we have a Savior who has already done that for us. No one is greater than his master. And so in John 13, when Jesus stood up, Took off his robe, put a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. He said, You see me do this? No one is greater than his master. Knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing where he'd come from, and knowing that he was going back to the Father, that's what he did. You and I, knowing that the Father has given us all things into our hands, knowing that we're going to the Father, we're free to follow the Master. The song that we're going to end with tonight is In Christ Alone. You don't have to open it up yet. I'm, I'm not going to sing it, so I, I'll tell you. In Christ Alone, um, my hope is found. I'm just reading through the words because when we sing, we mustn't forget to think about the words. In Christ Alone, my hope is found. What is that hope? What is my, that hope that I say is found in Christ that life, I'm never going to be abandoned. I'm fully accepted by the Father. I have a smile. He's my light, my strength, my song. Is Christ your light, your strength, and your song? Then, If not, then sing it till he is. Is he your cornerstone? Is he the solid ground that you're standing on? Is he really the firm one that you go to through the fiercest droughts and storms? When our fears are stilled, if we're honest, we have so many fears. And we thrash about grasping, trying to control our situation because we really, if we're honest, we don't trust Christ. I have my hope in so many other areas. And yet he promises to be my comforter, my all in all. And so it is that here, it is in the love of Christ that I stand. Have you been lost a relationship or a job, diagnosed with cancer? Do I trust Christ right now? Is he my solid ground right now? Do you have the son? Are you trusting your whole life to him? In the stormy seas of life, do you cling to the sea of blessing? the smile of the Father, the promise of eternal life, and the abiding knowledge of your Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are our hope and our shield, and you are God incarnate. Come to earth. You've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for when we recreate a Savior because we we want something else. Lord, I pray that we would embrace you as you are, that we would abide in you, and if your word abides in us, then we abide in you, and we have your smile. We have eternal life. And so, Father, glorify yourself in us and through us, Draw us closer to yourself, and I pray that our lives would be transformed by the glory of the gospel in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond together now, standing and singing in Christ alone. of God, now we have the glorious opportunity to hear the doxology and the benediction in which, after having heard God's word, we have promises that we take with us out through these doors and into the world beyond. So dear brothers and sisters, hear the benediction. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling